Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organization, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smilian Jankovic, and Valda Glynn, to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics, alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Lewis and you're listening to the Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archie Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. In today's episode, I'm joined by very special guest, Vanessa Shortino, Special Counsel of Nicholson Solicitors, alongside Archie Gallon Redshaw Managing Director, Smilian Djokovic. Across the session, we'll be covering a variety of topics from both a legal and accounting perspective in regards to the management rights industry, including such things as top-ups and exercising options, body corporate consent, uh, clawback clauses, uh, a little bit of insights into the buyer's market as well alongside handover periods, and some discussions surrounding the risk analysis profiles in regards to COVID-19. Together, Vanessa and Smolian will bring together their collective experience to provide owners and operators within the management rights industry with best practice insights. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you very much for having me. Likewise, Smolian, welcome. Well, thanks, Chris. And welcome to Vanessa as well. Yeah. Uh, so as some background, Vanessa is special counsel of Nicholson Solicitors, a leading mid-tier law firm servicing clients across commercial law and litigation, insolvency, management rights, uh, property law, strata law, and banking and finance. Uh, Vanessa has over 14 years experience within the legal sector in the areas of management rights, uh, hotels and motels, body corporate matters and general property. Uh, and she also has extensive experience in buying and selling management rights, both off the plan, uh, looking at renewals and renewal strategies, uh, variations, and then other uh, matters in regards to body corporate issues and disputes. Um, alongside all that, uh, she's built an extensive network throughout the industry as well, uh, a proud member of Arama, alongside the Women's and Management Rights uh, group, networking group as well and is a member of the Queensland Law Society. So really wanted to, to bring you both uh, here today, I say to discuss the, the management rights industry and obviously looking at these matters um, and really just give listeners a bit of uh, insights and some best practice understanding of um, both the, the legal and the accounting um, components that are involved within the management rights and um, obviously for, for owners and operators as well. Um, I know that the management rights industry is split into sort of two separate areas, obviously looking at the permanent space, but then also the short-term uh, holiday complexes. So it'd be good to maybe give some insights into both of those areas respectively, um, and then just generally across the, across the industry as well. Yep, that sounds good, Chris. <laughs> Um, so we'll start off with uh, a bit of a, an intro topic, I suppose, with regards to, to top-ups and, and exercising options. So um, it'd be good to, to give the listeners, obviously, a bit of um, understanding in regards to that and, um, as I say, some discussions involving that area, you know, whether it's regarding expiry date or terms of agreements. But um, I guess that's where we'll start off with in in that respect is that the terms of agreements um, you know, typically they're five years 
Is that standard? Can you go beyond that? What's sort of the thought process in that respect? So I think um, it's probably good to start with what are the differences between a top-up and exercising options. And uh, it, it's really funny that we're still talking about this because there's so much confusion in the industry with uh, new managers and even uh, current experienced managers about what the difference is. So it, they're two very distinct things. So exercising an option is something that's already in your agreement and you are confirming to the body corporate that you wish to extend your term for whatever the relevant period is. So often um, in an agreement you might have, if you're in the accommodation module, 25 years as your term. And it can be a full 25 years or split into several different periods. So you could have 10 years and 15 year option or five years with four five year options. Whatever it is to give you up to the maximum allowable time. Exercising an option is one of those options that are already included in your agreement. A top up is something that you add to your agreement so that it includes another option to top it up, in inverted commas, to the remaining term to the maximum allowable time. The Act only allows you to do five years maximum at a time. So for example, if you had 23 years remaining on the term of your agreement and you did a top up which was five years, the agreement is automatically read down so that that further option is only for two years so that the agreement hasn't breached the term limitation in the Act. So when we do a top up, we generally look at all of the options that are still available to a manager to make sure that we never breach that limitation um, term. So hopefully that's given you a yep. bit of an understanding yep. about the differences between them. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell us a bit of, about the any issues exercising the options? Uh, yeah, so um, there was a period of time where some of the agreements, and this would only be about 5% of agreements we see, that have an automatic renewal term. So that means that if your agreement was for a 10-year term with five-year options up to 25 years, your first option automatically renewed unless a manager gave notice to a body corporate to say, hey, I don't want to renew my agreement and I'm out. The likelihood of a manager ever doing that is ridiculously slim. So yeah. these options were um, very strange to have in an agreement. When we do a top up, we try to replicate whatever the option term is currently in the agreement so that for consistency, they all work the same. However, when you're doing them now, any body corporate solicitor will refuse to allow you to have an automatic exercise of option term in your agreement. So they normally put a prescriptive time frame for a manager to exercise that option, which is usually between three and six months before the expiry date of the end of the term. It's really important that these days are diarised <laughs> because if you miss that window, your option, your term of your agreement expires at the end of that current period. You don't have a right to exercise the option outside of that period. And what that means is your agreement comes to an end. It's over. Any 
particular cases that you had in past? Yes, yeah, so this unfortunately has become um, a very common theme where managers haven't exercised their options or they've received poor advice when they're being purchasing. And we've come across due diligence reports from other lawyers where it wasn't even brought to their attention about the timing that you're required to exercise an option within. So this is a really serious um, matter and something that if you have a poor relationship with your body corporate, the likelihood of being granted a new agreement is very low. And if they were to agree, they have all the power. So often we see remuneration has decreased, um, the duties become more extensive, the term becomes less than what is ideal, and this ultimately is a major risk for your financier and quite possibly is a breach of your covenants with your bank about your agreements and what your requirements are in terms of ensuring that your agreements are always current and that you do everything you need to to make sure that they do not expire. Saying from the legal perspective, what sort of things you guys will be doing in order to give a proper advice and and um, and notify those buyers that they should be, you know, yeah. coming up for the exercise. So, unfortunately, we wouldn't be able to remind all of our clients because that would take somebody. It's a full-time job, and I have had people in the past say, "Why didn't you remind me?" At the end of the day, it's your business. Correct. We tell you when you're, what the term is, when your options are, the timing that you're required to exercise it. We give you the specific dates. We calculate all of that for you. And we tell you to make sure that you put that into your reminder system. There's various methods you can put reminders these days, all sorts of technology. in your phone, in your calendar, on whatever type of email system you use. Um, I've been shown various apps from different clients about that. It's so important and it's something that clients, often first-timers, do not give a lot of regard to. We also remind them at the end of a transaction in our final letters to our client. We say, hey, don't forget, these are the dates. Make sure you put your reminders in. We try to do everything we can to assist them. Uh, If it's close to when the settlement is happening, we either make the, if it's permissible in the, um, the time frame to have the seller exercise the option so that we can make a mention of that in the deed of assignment or we prepare the notice for the client so it's ready to go. So we'll just keep reminding them yep. if it's within that two to three month window yep. after settlement because I've had a number of these where it's happened very soon and because a manager is and a buyer is all excited, they're taking over a business, they're trying to get uh, everything under control, get their head around everything and it's in that couple of months where they're most likely to forget about it. So I never want that to happen to one of my clients so I will remind them about that. But anything beyond that, it's really your responsibility. You're buying a million plus business. You need to do everything you can to ensure that you keep that business secure. 
Correct. When it comes to top-ups, uh, what are the key reasons people are you know, approaching and asking for the top-ups and you guys assisting them on that side? Yeah, it's really um, to make sure that they've got the longest term possible because it's your asset um, and it, then it's also, it could be a requirement of your bank to ensure that you've got the longest term possible so that their security is secure, for want of a better word. Yeah. Um, and it's also, as people go to sell, when a financier is looking at the agreements, they want to also ensure that there's the longest possible term available to them. So it's multifaceted and um, if you've got a good relationship with your body corporate and your committee, generally getting a top-up through isn't um, a, a massive deal. It's the ones where there's issues with the committee, with performance, where we see the most problems. I had one case where we had clients that they've been really good operators, then the committee was kind of you know, opposing to top up because they didn't want to lose them because of that good relationship and good operation skills. So, yeah, it happens on that side as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've seen some where top ups are refused because, um, and while it's not, like, they obviously can't give you this reason, but because they haven't wanted the uh, manager to sell and leave, so then they make it a little bit more difficult. Yep. Um, and then others adjust depending on the law lawyers that they use if they're opposed to uh, management rights. And um, there's all sorts of propaganda that gets sent out. But the most important thing for a manager to remember is that you're not guaranteed a top up. There's yep. nothing that requires a body corporate to give you a further term. Like, any type of business if you're leasing a premises. Once your options have expired, there's no requirement for a landlord to agree to give you a longer period of time to stay in that premises. You're out, basically. And again, if you've had a terrible relationship with your landlord, or you don't like your landlord, the chances of you staying are very slim. So you need to think about it in that sense that you know it is a business you're running, at a complex for servicing other people. Yes, so speaking obviously about the, the body corporate uh, there, it'd be great to discuss a little bit more on that front and specifically around the, the body corporate consent process um, and your thoughts regarding that. Yeah, sure. So oh, a couple of years ago, um, there were a lot of consents being refused by bodies corporate. So there was a number of uh, lawyers in the industry which were trying to change the timing requirements for body corporate consent. So that consent was obtained um, as a first condition of the contract um, instead of its current place, which is once all the contract terms are unconditional. Because as a seller, um, if it was me, I wouldn't want to be going to my body corporate asking them to consent to a new person yep. if they haven't confirmed finance, due diligence or income verification because you could expend all this time and money uh, going through the consent process and upsetting the body corporate. For example, if they really liked this new manager and they then didn't go ahead, what's that going to do with your relationship? I guess unless there's a, a really specific reason as to why you would get consent at the outset, it could be you've already tried to obtain consent previously and was refused, 
that would probably be the only reason why you'd want to do it at the outset. But generally speaking, it gets um, consent is requested after finance is approved, which is ordinarily the last condition. And when I first started in the industry, consent from a financier or finance approval was taking 21 days. It's now up to a minimum of 42 days. And the reason that banks say that is because they don't start the process until they've got the accounting report, the due diligence report, um, and then those conditions can be generally counting. They have to do their job the quickest, 14 yeah. days. And then due diligence is 21 days. So then they start their process from that time. So we've got quite a lead time before we get to consent process. And by that stage, everybody's just eager to get it done. So what we try to do is, as soon as we have due diligence confirmed, we get all the stuff necessary that we can to have ready to go to give to a body corporate to request consent. So it's the seller's responsibility to obtain that consent. And there's consent processes are taking longer. So people often think or say that the body corporate only has 30 days in which to consent. But what's missing from that is, it's 30 days from the date that the body corporate is supplied with all of the information that they require to make a decision. So if we give them a whole bunch of stuff, they come back and ask for further information, time doesn't start running until we've provided them that information. So that's a really important distinction to make and for people to understand because they often say, well, this has taken three months, but if you haven't provided everything at the outset, that's why the consent process is taking so long. So I will get a buyer to complete the standard interview questions that pretty much all bodies corporate require a buyer to complete. Uh, get all of the information, police checks, uh, references. So they still require two or three business and personal references. Uh, you also have to have a look at what's actually in the agreement in relation to assignment. So the Act prescribes particular things, but then your agreement can elaborate on further things that they can ask for. So basically they can ask for whatever generally to fit into one of those criteria. And it's really so that they can make an informed decision. Some committees don't like that responsibility. So they will ask for an expert in the industry to do an interview for them. So the likes of the ABMA, for example, um, they do a number of assignment um, interviews and they're there to go through all of the duties, responsibilities that a manager is ordinarily required to undertake to check whether the buyer is able to meet those requirements. So for example, I had one report where um, there was a huge component of the property which was grassed and the buyer didn't know how to start a lawn model. So that's a really important aspect of that agreement. So instead of just saying, no, we're not giving you consent, it was, okay, well, we'll give you consent, but we need you to undertake some further training. So there's people that can assist these managers 
um, to get up to standard. So we'll often see that as a condition of consent, there's some other requirements, and that could be to undergo further training or other things, really, um, so that they are competent to take over the business. Yeah, I'll just probably add to what Vanessa mentioned as well. Yeah, definitely encourage those new entrants uh, in the market that they definitely approach to a consultant uh, in order to prepare them for those you know, interview assignments and uh, help them and assist them with um, those um, preliminary caretaking duties uh, when it comes to that stage. Yeah, and a lot of the agents are, um, are clued onto this now as well. So a new entrant, I'll say to them, um, look, there's these courses that you can do, um, and if they don't do them, they know that they're not really interested in buying the business and doing the correct thing, which is a telltale sign because if you're not prepared to spend a couple of grand on some training to make sure that you really know what you're doing, then the likelihood that you're going to succeed is very slim. Yeah, definitely. And they need to understand putting so much uh, that money in a business, that tangible side when they buy the business, so they have to invest in that intangible aspect of the of the business where the education, trainerships and all the preliminary side of the purchasing of the business is taken uh, in order to make sure that business, you know, is considered correctly and the committee considers considers these guys as a right people uh, for the job. So on the consent process, what would the sunset clause mean in regards to that? So the sunset clause is included in the contract because body corporate consent process often doesn't take 30 days. So generally when we're working out dates, we'll have from finance um, 30 days after that and that's the settlement date. So there's a clause in the um, special conditions that are usual in management rights which provides that if body corporate consent isn't provided on the settlement date, the contract is automatically extended to two business days following consent of the body corporate being granted. And that's to a maximum of 30 days from the original settlement date. So that 30 days is known as the sunset date. If it looks like that consent is going to take longer than that additional 30 days, we'll often request an extension of the settlement date. So that sunset date moves at the same time that the settlement date does, opposed to simply relying on that condition. And uh, with respect to the clawback and claw forward, um, would that be sort of included in as part of that sunset? Or so the claw forward and claw back works um, in terms of the number of appointments you might have on the settlement date. So we use that in calculating um, the purchase price. The callback call forward conditions came about a couple of years ago because of settlements taking much longer than they were taking. Buyers were concerned that they were paying a higher price for an asset when at settlement they may not have had those uh, appointments still in the letting pool because obviously there's a delay between when your accountant does your verification, tells you how many units there are in the pool and when settlement may occur which could be three, four, five months after that date. So there was always a concern about what happens in that period if a seller loses them. My personal opinion of them is I don't like them. If you are a buyer asking for a clawback clause 
as a seller, you would then automatically want a claw forward so that if your business starts succeeding more than what it is and you receive more appointments, then you would want your buyer to pay for them. Buyers don't like that because then that affects their financing arrangement. So the way we sometimes get around that is if there's more or less than two that have been lost or gained from the pool, that's when the clauses kick in. A number of times I've had to use one of them has been maybe one in 10. The reality is if it's a long-term business, they don't fluctuate very much. Correct. So this was really, really an over-conservative way of dealing with buyers who were concerned about uh, losing appointments in the letting pool during that period. Yeah, definitely. And uh, a lot of times, yeah, yeah, when the contract lands on our desk, if there's a clawback condition in there, we will definitely verify the, the amount of the of the clawback. Uh, or sometimes the the contracts will accept the accountant's uh, net profit figure at multiplier to give that sort of uh, clawback figure when it comes to the dis- discussions between buyers and the seller. Yeah, and you know, then it also comes to um, sometimes if you've got, say, a complex that has one bedroom letting um, units compared to three or four, people want to itemise the differences in the appointments and how much they can receive for an appointment. Because obviously, if you're renting a one bedroom compared to a four, there's quite a variance. Yeah, correct. So we will definitely look into those actual costs for that particular unit and uh, whatever during that period that unit was uh, generating in net income. So that amount will be stripped down for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we rely on you guys for that. We don't like numbers. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So it'd be great to discuss a little bit around the buyer's market at the moment looking at management right operators that may own one complex but then they're adding to their portfolio do you see a lot of that happening from a legal perspective and then from an accounting side it'd be great to hear your thoughts as well Smilian, about what's happening in that respect yeah definitely um, technically it is almost anniversary of the covid 19 uh, you know measures t- took place and uh, I guess that COVID-19 has really reshaped the economy in Australia and also the management rights industry in particular. Uh, when we look at the short-term lets, uh, definitely there was a lot of disruption in that, in that industry, in that sector. And uh, there's really little of transactions uh, happening at the moment. So it is quite uncertain sector at this stage. And, you know, with a bit of optimism, I guess, um, it will bounce back, so it is a matter of a time. Definitely, I've done only a few transactions since June last year in that sector. Maybe more accountants have done more. However, that's something is what we're noticing. It's a quite slow process, and uh, probably managers are still holding on on their businesses. They don't want to really lose the value of the business because of the current figures, but they're coming up. And uh, as opposed to good operators, there might be good opportunity for them to sort of... Uh, get good dips you know and buy law and um, hold on to those businesses and sell it when the market recovers so definitely it's, it's kind of like you know two sides for the short-term side does it take longer to settle on this uh, short-term lets definitely yes uh, from the verification from the valuation perspective and also from the lending perspective so it, it really is going to take longer 
um, as opposed to pre-COVID-19. Um, when we look at the permanent sector, I'll, I'll say this sector has been really resilient throughout the COVID period. It really showed strong market supply and demand in this, um, in this uh, particular industry. Uh, definitely, I've seen very high multipliers uh, for the last couple of months. And when it comes to the buyer's market, it is obvious that um, more uh, experienced buyers with multiple complexes, they're adding to their additional portfolio, as well as corporate businesses, they're looking into the you know, space and expanding their business even further. So those buyers have really good business acumen, good industry knowledge and skills and good processes in place. So they try to achieve economies of scale in that respect. I believe this market will be strong. It's a low risk model. Definitely, I see the strong, um, stronger um, permanent sector going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, I think what COVID-19 has shown is, like you said, the resilience of the long-term market. I mean, everybody needs a place to live. And, you know, uh, I heard a speaker, uh, the CEO of the REIQ recently, who said that um, there, you know, there was all this talk about oversupply of apartments a few years back and that really has not happened. The amount of people trying to get to Queensland is phenomenal. I mean, they've always wanted to come here, but I think what's happened is um, seeing how well we've dealt with COVID, it's actually sped up their timeline for moving. So the rate of people coming into our state has just grown exponentially, probably nothing like we've ever seen before. So um, the rental market is uh, something that's really crazy at the moment. Um, people trying to find places. It, there's always numbers of offers for a place and lots of people still out there um, looking. So I think that's really indicative of um, a, a good, stable market. Um, there was talk right at the beginning about, um, from valuers and accountants, um, specifically valuers about devaluing the business or taking into account a reduction in the profit. Uh, depending on you know the circumstances and they were looking originally at applying that across the board and it's really something that has to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, the, all the permanent let businesses that I've seen none of them have been affected by renters in their pool wanting a concession due to COVID-19. Of course, there were people that tried it on, but they couldn't then substantiate their claims. So those businesses have just continued to grow and grow and grow. Um, in terms of the short-term let, obviously that was um, severely impacted um, right at the beginning when you know there was a blanket, you can't um, stay in hotels, etc. But if you have a look in North Queensland, it's going great guns. You've got all the people who can't travel overseas looking um, in, interstate or within our yeah. own state. So those businesses have seen profits that they may not have previously seen. So that's going to also be an interesting way for accountants to look at this. You know, is it a one like a blip in their records and you know we're looking at doing a two-year um, look back at yeah. figures. Yeah definitely two-year will be something that will 
you know, approach to it. So just to make sure that to see the occupancy in those certain periods of the year, uh, especially with the school holidays, Christmas, New Year. So these are the sort of periods that are normally busy and uh, it has shown that the local market has really bounced back and um, Queensland was, you know, very doing well as opposed to other states. So, you know, relying upon interstate market from New South Wales and Victoria was just um, due to the, you know, border closure. So as soon as that really settles, I guess, uh, you know, the business will be back in normal. I mean, I've got family down in Melbourne who are just like waiting like anything to get back up here. You know, they've missed out on their um, summer period up here because of the closures. So I think the rest, the remainder of the year is going to see a lot more travelling within Australia. So the likelihood of occupancy being low seems to be low. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely will bounce back and we're all optimistic, so just it's a matter of time. So hopefully that there's no any further closures and and I guess our businesses are already, you know, prepared for something if unexpected happens. So good you know, plans in place. It's something that, you know, it's important and crucial for those businesses to have and uh, to bounce back, you know, uh, I guess that's... Absolutely. And even in terms of flexibility, um, you know, from my personal experience, we were booked for um, a little mini holiday uh, in January and we were going the day after um, we had that snap five-day lockdown so we were due to leave on the on the Saturday and the place we were staying were so understanding we got to move our booking um, they didn't charge extra we couldn't stay the full time we were going to but we were able to find somewhere else but it's the way in which managers deal with those situations which is going to really determine how well they're going to succeed in the future. Because from that experience, I'm like, well, that's great. I really want to go back there again to support you. Whereas if I had been treated, um, you know, not well or told that I had to pay for that regardless, then that's going to sour my experience and I'm going to let people know that I didn't have a very good experience. Moving on to, I guess, an accounting perspective, and this is probably a question more so for, for yourself, Smilian. Um, what type of things do you see in that particular area? Is there any common trends or anything like that that you um, see, I guess, impacting the management rights industry from an accounting point of view? And maybe a bit of, I guess, thought on some of the best practices that operators can utilise from that perspective? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, definitely, there's uh, always some issues that come across when we do verification side of the uh, of the of the net profits, and that's probably one of the uh, you know the biggest issue I, I guess uh, when it comes down when we're verifying uh, net profit figures where vendors or even accountants that are not specialising in management or industry they're preparing net profit figures where in many cases we will see understatement of the expenses of a stating profit, of course, um, and at the same time having applying different benchmarks, inappropriate analysis of you know, direct costs, and uh, one of the costs is the labor that's always inappropriately uh, disclosed in, in, a net, in, a, in, in a statement. So having good accountant and having a industry specialist um, you know uh, preparing those figures will definitely you know remove those particular issues and um, remove the possibilities that your business value will be 
dropping down or renegotiated with the with potential buyers. So we would definitely like and recommend all the all the operators in industry and um, and potential potential vendors try not to avoid you know paying some amount of money to specialist accountants. Otherwise, in short term, you might lose in the long term, and definitely it can postpone the settlement because of. Uh, the verification figures coming down and doing all the negotiations uh, with with the buyer. And, um, just on that, million, when we look at the reports, you know, we go through and check what's been verified and the letting numbers that you've looked at and what's in the pool and what's not, etc. And some of the common themes, and not obviously from you, but others, is that they don't look at the forms themselves. And I see a lot of notations that say you should have your your letting appointments checked by your lawyer. Um, I mean, from our perspective, we're not out there. We're not checking yeah. those things. That's no. what we're expecting from you guys. So what's your process? Oh, look, definitely our process is, uh, you know, of course, going through every single form. Uh, we would definitely like if a vendor can have them in a soft copy and to you know providers in that sort of uh, format however sometimes it can take you know hours in order to go through each form and um, unfortunately we go through that process making sure that the buyer is really you know buying into a business with a you know um, with the value uh, as opposed to having unsigned forms um, making sure that the forms are assignable, PAMBA 20A or even Form 6s have that continuing um, clause you know, in them. So these are all the things that we really pick up uh, throughout the verification side. And as I said, signed forms are the key and dates that are not put on the forms in, in many cases and uh, fee schedules are sort of the ones that are a lot of times are missing so we can't really verify according to the uh, trust accounting system if they're really charging the owner correct amount of money sometimes we look at the forms and uh, where the fee schedules are sort of changed by someone so and there was no initials made so to justify that charges are correct and true and definitely, yes, uh, there's a lot of issues coming across looking at the letting appointments and this is something that we really pay attention to detail, uh, making sure that the buyer is not missing on anything. Yeah, as I said, um, these are the, probably the key areas that we really focus on during the verification process uh, and um, having those inconsistencies, uh, we really disclose and put a big disclaimer in, 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 in our report, making sure that the buyer is aware of those things. Also, put a bit of a um, discussion on a, with with the vendor um, where they really need to place a bit more uh, uh, regulation on their side when when it comes to selling the business. Um, and probably the last thing I wanted to sort of touch on. It's not you know relevant to um, verification side, but it's more about the new entrance. We already sort of. Sp- talking about that uh, through the the consent uh, the body corporate consent but it is something that always been a case where I'd like to see a longer period of the handover for the new entrants in the industry especially from from the perspective they need experience they need skills and they need more education as opposed to having seven days or 14 days which is the currently you know common common handover process and you can't really do much in, in, in that period and we all know 
whoever's got a business themselves so that you really need to have a longer period in order to understand what's going to be done in the in the next stage and uh, saying that should consultants be involved in pre and post settlement definitely yes uh pre-settlement which we mentioned uh, to give a bit of a hand on that sort of assignment preparation with the committee uh, post-settlement is just any issues with particular business day-to-day running and um, you know any issues along the caretaking duties those uh, consultants will be able to give better um, you know uh, recommendation and advice as opposed to having you know manager not knowing exactly what they do yeah I absolutely agree and you know by the time somebody's um, decided to sell and they've gone through the sale process, they've put had it on the market, we've gone through these months and months of conditions, a seller has ordinarily checked out. The same when you're selling your own house, you know, you just want to get out there and get into your new yep. place. So we will always say to a buyer in any business that they're buying, you are better to get as much pre-training before settlement than after settlement. Because trying to force somebody to come back and give you training after they've checked out is very difficult. And you know, the majority of our sellers are they do the right thing and they give and they try to give and give and give. When you have a new entrant that doesn't really know what's happening, um, they're not really taking that advice on board. That's when we have an issue because we see the manager selling, selling, trying to give them that information and getting frustrated because the buyer isn't doing their part in terms of trying to absorb all of that information. And that is so key. When you're buying a business from somebody, learn as much as you can from that person in terms of the procedures, in how to communicate with your owners how to communicate with your committee because they have a wealth of knowledge which they've built up over time and it's being handed to you on a platter take it and absorb as much as you can that's definitely correct and um, thanks Vanessa for joining us today and um, definitely we'll have plenty of those in future as well so thanks for having me yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of for listeners out there that may need some legal advice with regards to their complex, how would they go about getting in contact with yourself? What's the best way to do that? Um, pick up the phone or <laughs> call our office. Um, just ask to speak with me or send me an email. Um, very easy. It's vas at nicholsons.com.au. We also have our website, nicholsons.com.au. Please forgive us. It is in the process of being updated. Um, anyone that's dealt with the IT will know it's a convoluted process and we're still getting that sorted. But I have now made an appearance on there for a while. You couldn't find me. Um, but I am up there. So a call to our office, email however you prefer to um, talk about matters, uh, it's up to you. Terrific. Well, um, yeah, thank you again for, for joining us this morning. It was terrific to hear your your insights and opinions on, on such. And uh, yeah, likewise, William, thank you for, for your thoughts there. And yeah, look forward to working further you know, in the future as well. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support and assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallant Redshaw. 
led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic and Valda Glenn. Our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice, supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout Southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website, www.agredshaw.com.au, via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 073002 2699.